0: Welcome to Inside the Rope, the podcast where we speak to the leading minds in wealth management. And in this episode, we are really doing that, speaking to one of the pioneers of the Australian private equity investment landscape and someone that I really admire and has been a huge influence in my career, and that's Andrew Rothery. I think you'll really enjoy his insight and some of the involvements that he's got in impact investing and private equity and venture capital at the moment are super exciting. And I think there's plenty of takeouts for people thinking about managing portfolios and how private assets play a role in those assets. Please remember that this podcast isn't designed, nor is it personal advice or general advice. People are always encouraged to listen to the disclaimer at the back and or make inquiries with their advisor and read offer documents As appropriate. Please do remember to keep sending me your feedback. You can email me at david.clark at codacapital.com. Enjoy the episode. Andrew Rothery, welcome to Inside the Rope. Thank you, David. It's my pleasure to be here. Well, Andrew, I'm going to kick off in a slightly different way before I ask you to tell us about ourselves, but yourself. Um, But I, I just want a little story about. I guess my being at Coda and my being a partner at Coda um, is in no small shape or form due to yourself. And it's an interesting little story where uh, one of my father's longest serving clients who, you know, I'm going to date myself here, but, you know, back to the mid seventies and one of my longest clients, um, when when Steve Tucker had approached me and said, Clarkie, how about uh, you think about being a partner at Coda something like eight years ago, um, I, I sort of, put the concept in front of a couple of people I really respected and a couple of people included this, this client of mine. And, uh, I, I got two or three pages into this deck. I was showing him saying, this is my idea. This is what I think. And he said, stop, stop, threw his hand down on the page and, and said, if Rothery is involved, it'll be good. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm excited to have you on the podcast and, uh, thank you for that, um, Small part in in me becoming a partner at Coda. I, I thank you for it. Perhaps you could kick off for the listeners in introducing yourself and and tell them who you are. Sure. So Andrew Rothery. Um, <clears throat> I'm a non-executive director,
1: non-executive investment committee member on mostly boards and businesses that have something to do with investment or wealth management, and specifically private market investment. I do have one outlier in the form of a business on whose board I sit, which is Australia's biggest wholesale nursery business, and I love being involved with that business. Uh, But I have spent most of my life working in and around private markets, started life as a lawyer, hated it, then moved into management consulting, hated it not so much the content of the work, but the work-life balance was pretty tragic. And then literally found myself falling into private equity investing way back in 1989 uh, when I bumped into an old buddy from university who was working for the first management buyout firm that was set up in Australia, the old management, uh, Buyvest management buyout group, bumped into him in the street. Uh, he asked me what I was doing. I told him about how I was working as a management consultant, uh, not enjoying it. He said, well, come and have a cup of coffee and I'll tell you all about leverage buyouts and management buyouts. And that cup of coffee was actually a job interview from his perspective. Um, And a few weeks later, I ended up working with the Best Management Buyout Group. uh, And that's how I started in private equity investing. Uh, Was involved uh, through the 80s and 90s um, at the end of the 90s, I started to get just a little bit uh, concerned about the fact that I wanted to do some other things with my life, started plotting and scheming about an exit as a transactor in private equity investing. And about five years later, or well, 2006, I ended up uh, finishing my career as a hands-on transactor and reinvented myself as a non-executive director, non-executive investment committee member.
0: And... If you rewind back, and I think my client was referring and he said, well, Rothery will be great. He bought my company, which he (laughs) sold a paper business in the early 90s. Where were you then and what were you doing? Uh, Was that at GS Private Equity or similar?
1: Yeah, that was the old GS Private Equity. So the Bybus Management Buyout Group was um, founded by three gentlemen, Ross Grant of Grant Samuel, Bill Gurry, who was... The uh, CEO of Australia Bank, I think, at one stage, um, and David Saunders. Uh, all three were ex Hill Samuel Australia people. Uh, it was really David Saunders' idea to set up that first buyout fund. Um, as I said, I joined in 1989. Um, that fund did an extraordinary job, if I say so myself, of weathering that recession, that last real recession that we had in 1990, 1991. I tell you, managing a highly leveraged, Portfolio of businesses in Australia at that point in time, when you know I recall we had Mez debt coupons at about twenty two percent. That's a running yield. That's not paying kind, uh, but we nursed that portfolio or most of that portfolio through to a pretty successful outcome. And then um, the other two people, Bill Gurry and David Saunders, weren't too keen about doing it again. I think we all had some scar tissue as a result of. Uh, as i say nursing that portfolio through that recession but ross grant uh, who by then had set up grant samuel tapped me on the shoulder and said well you know what it wasn't too bad even though the outcome wasn't as good as we'd hoped for everyone else that was doing what we were doing had blown up during the recession so as the last one standing why don't we give it another go and that's how gs private equity the gs as i say Grant samuel private equity was formed um and it was at about that time that yes Edward Dunlop was the paper business that you are referring to. Mm-hmm. Um, and we had a great time. I mean, Ross Grant was a great mentor uh, and a great supporter. Uh, and GS Private Equity, gosh, let me think, it was formed in about 1995 or so. I think the company uh, came into existence. Uh, and it was 2004, I think it was, that myself and my two partners bought it out of the Grand Samuel Group and
0: rebadged it as Archer Capital. Okay, that's the origins for that. It's one of my questions already ticked off. But, wow, 19% interest rates. You uh, look in the papers these days and you talk about the severity of interest rate rises and rises being high and biting on the economy and people talking about this. But, of course, um, there's there's not that many people who have lived and gone through um, who, who, who have That interest rates at that level, and a lot of people just think, well, how did things actually function at 19% interest rates? Well, you just made them function. You had to. I mean, you know,
1: (laughs) years before then, I can remember that there was a cap on, I think, residential mortgages of about 14% per annum. So, you know, those sorts of rates, And you know, before I was referring to mayor's debt subordinate mm. debt rates, they weren't that crazy. People had just learned to live with that and work with that. Um, but it was tough. Um, and dare I say, without sounding like a, you know, old fogey, I reckon it was a bit tougher because in those days, certainly when that recession hit, you know, the surprise you got when the representative of the lender that you had been working with for the last several years suddenly disappeared and you were met in a meeting room by the guy from the bad bank who had to deal with all of the prospective problem child borrowers Um, and these were fierce people who basically the competition was to see who would blink first either we would say okay we'll put in more equity or they would say okay we will help you nurse this through to some sort of successful outcome
0: and what sort of companies and what sort of, and what do the transactions look and feel like there? You talked about them being high, highly leveraged, uh, but maybe you can describe for the listeners mm. the sort of companies and, and, and the look and feel of them.
1: Well, the businesses that we were looking for were unloved or orphaned businesses and old school metal bashing, retail um, businesses that, you know, you could buy in those days that four, five, six, seven times EBITDA, you could gear them up eight or nine times in terms of the total debt to the equity. Uh, And usually the value came from loving the business, just giving it some TLC and letting the top management team get on with things because usually the businesses that we were buying were divisions of larger public companies that had gotten lost, were no longer loved, and just really hadn't been given an opportunity to fulfil their potential. Um, we did a couple of uh, public-to-privates where we could see clear undervalue by the public markets of a couple of businesses. Um a Rebel Sport was, you know, one good example. But um, But by and large, the businesses that we looked for were divisions, subsidiaries of larger corporate groups that had just
0: gotten lost or forgotten within the larger group. And have the markets changed in terms of the advisory and transactional capacity or the competition now versus then? Oh, heavens, yes. I mean, you know, like it was a cottage industry in those days compared
1: to today. Um, The reality was when we started um, GS Private Equity, there still really weren't uh, corporate advisors or investment bankers that had a label called, you know, financial sponsor uh, Executive, so to speak, you know, the people who were focused exclusively on serving financial sponsors such as buyer chops. Uh, but of course, you know, every, you know, bulge bracket investment bank nowadays has a whole team of people who did nothing else but look after the private equity firms.
0: And what were the key learnings you think you took out of that period of your career that have held you in good stead today?
1: Um, I think the first one would be that it's all about management. In real estate, it's all about location, location, location. In private equity investing, it was all about management, management, management. Now, that's not to say that nothing else mattered. But at the end of the day, the only time I lost sleep about one of our portfolio companies was when I felt that we didn't have the best people that we could afford to be sitting in the seats of the top executive team at that particular company. Uh, And the businesses that did best were the businesses that were led by thoughtful chief executives and top management teams that had a bias for action, but also almost as importantly were prepared to be vulnerable. That is to say, they were prepared to swallow their pride when they'd hit a problem that they couldn't solve and to come to us and to say, help, I'm stuck. What do I do? Uh, And even the chief executives that did hit those sorts of problems in the end turned out to produce the best results because they worked collaboratively with us as opposed to sort of just saying, you know, get out of the way, I'll handle this. Um, So, yeah, I'd say that. I think, you know, the reality was – and I took this from my old management consulting career – you know, when we would look at potential targets, one of the things that we always focused on was industry structure. If it was a bad industry structure and there was no prospect of us improving it through consolidation or whatever, it was unlikely we'd buy that business. That's the one thing that it's really hard to swim against in terms of the
0: tide of a bad industry structure. Now, Andrew, you flagged right at the front that you've always been in private markets and keen listeners to the podcast <coughs> will realise we've had a bit of a theme over the last six months to 12 months in private markets and giving people a better understanding of the nuances and some of the assets. And, and this conversation has really come about, I was having a conversation a month or so ago with Paul Heath about some clients and a portfolio and we are transitioning this client... To, to to this and to, to more private type of assets. And um, he said, well, Clarkie, you want to have a chat to Andrew Rothery. Tell me why is it that you've been attracted to private markets rather than public markets and where do you see the, the benefits of that?
1: Yeah, um, well, I guess there's a bias that stems from the fact that that's where I really started my professional career. I mean, yes, I started... As a lawyer and then a management consultant but it was really uh i guess the serious part of my career was uh, working uh in that leveraged buyout fund um so i've started i started in private markets and just learned to love them uh i guess why i like private markets and why i have always enjoyed investing them in them is that there is a much higher signal-to-noise ratio in private markets than public markets. public markets, there can be a lot of noise. Emotion, sentiment can really distort prices of securities. I'm choosing my words carefully. Mm. Ross Grant, um, who, of course, at Grant Samuel, you know, was the chief executive and founder of a business that – was probably best known for the valuation reports that they used to do. So there was a man who you couldn't tell him anything about valuing a business. And as he used to say, the value of a business never changes as much as the price of its securities. And that's because in public markets, it can be all sorts of things, all sorts of noise that can impact the price of security and can lead a security to not be necessarily reflective in terms of the price of the underlying value of the business. So I've liked the fact that in private markets, by and large, you're insulated from that noise, you're able to buy and sell at true values and you're not hostage to market sentiment. So I've always enjoyed that. Um, I guess I've enjoyed the rigor of, you know, both the buy and sell side involve you sitting down across the table from very smart people in very detailed negotiations. And there's a rigour associated with that. It's not to say that there isn't rigour in public market investing, far from it. Um, But there is a rigour in terms of sitting down opposite some smart people to negotiate a sale or purchase in a private market environment.
0: And where do you see some of the weaknesses? Obviously, the biggest trade-off with people in public in private markets and private assets versus public is is often liquidity. It's pretty much always liquidity. Yeah. Are are there any other weaknesses or areas you'd say, well, you you just want to be fully aware of this before people start allocating serious parts of their portfolio to private assets?
1: Look, it's it's liquidity one, two and three, I would say. Um, And if you are managing or you have a portfolio of assets – Uh, where there is a need for liquidity from time to time for whatever reason. It's a family office that occasionally has to pay out dividends to the family members. You just need cash for your retirement or whatever. You cannot have a portfolio that is weighted too heavily towards private markets because sad reality is it'll be just at the time when you need that cash and you want to put it into something else when all of a sudden liquidity dries up for whatever reason Or, or simply you just can't realize that asset um in any quick or short period of time so that that's the big drawback now look i do know that there are institutional investors and some family officers who have built private equity and venture capital programs that are so old in the sense of long-standing and large that there's an inbuilt form of liquidity that comes from the older funds that are throwing off cash that either can be consumed or reinvested into newer funds. But, you know, you, you've got to be going for at least 15 or so years to get into that kind of
0: self-funding situation. Mm. Listeners, uh, we've had the Partners Group on, for instance, and I think they're, you know, when we spoke to them a year or so ago, they were managing, I want to say, something north of $80 billion US. US. Uh-huh. Um, so, you know, that's an example of where there's been liquidity provided to markets where there hasn't been in, in the past, do you think there are certain sorts of assets or asset classes that are better suited to private ownership and, and unlisted environments than are?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. Um, <clears throat> I think everything can find a home in a private market. Whether you're talking equities, debt securities, alternatives such as, you know, f- forest, oil and gas, goodness knows whatever else, um, anything can find a home in a private market. The issue simply is whether the underlying investor, the underlying beneficiary, um, might have from time to time an urgent
0: need for liquidity. Uh,
1: so I think it's, 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 it's less underlying asset specific. It's more the needs of the investor.
0: I was having a conversation a few months ago with a lady who's on the board of five or six large Australian listed companies and her, her son, who's a third-year economics student was at the table as well, and we we're having a chat about private versus public markets and the pros and cons. And, and and she was very much of the opinion that the transparency that's available in the public markets um, is, is, is like light or disinfectant that should make investors feel much, much more comfortable than the private markets. Where do you stand on that?
1: Um, it's a good point and a fair comment, but I would say this, which is at the end of the day... There is as much transparency about what's going on inside a business held by a private equity investor um, as there is in public markets at that time when the private equity investor comes to sell the business. There is a whopping big spotlight that will be shone by prospective buyers on that business at that time. So, yes, it's not the same degree of transparency on a day-to-day basis, but there must come a time. When there is every bit as much transparency, if not more, because let's face it, in the case of public market companies, they're often precluded from being able to say everything they'd like to say. Well, it's
0: inside insider trading rules, correct, which don't apply <clears> in the correct.
1: Markets. But in private markets, there will come that time when they will have to basically show everything and anything that the buyer needs to see. And if the reality is that that business has been badly managed for the previous however many years by the private equity owner it'll show up and it'll be reflected in the price that they get.
0: So, Andrew, maybe if I can change gears a little bit and talk about where you are at, at a non-executive director, what are some of the positions you've got at the moment?
1: Well, let's start here, Coda Capital, (coughs) um, as one of the original investors and founding non-executive director. um, And, you know, that position came about because of course i knew steve tucker and paul heath from my time on the jb weir and uh, mlc nab wealth boards um, respected them enormously respected their idea about sending up setting up a completely independent advice only wealth management firm just thought you know this is it they've captured the zeitgeist with the model for the business and so um, was very quick to put up my hand to join uh, and to help them raise some of the original capital to get the business up and uh, running. And, um, you know, I am immensely proud of my association with this business and the way it has grown and what it has done uh, in the world of um, advice and wealth management. Um, I chair a business called Cicada Innovations, which is a deep tech incubator uh, jointly owned by four universities, the University of New South Wales, University of Sydney, ANU and UTS. Uh, enjoy that enormously that that's almost a bit of kind of pro bono work I feel at times because you know this is a business that is helping to foster the growth of really important businesses by important businesses I mean businesses that are solving big problems uh, that humanity faces whether it's climate whether it's food security uh, whatever um,
0: so these are kind of like the moonshots these
1: are moonshot businesses you mm-hmm. uh, You know, deep tech is a phrase that is often used uh, as a kind of... If you don't
0: understand it, it's deep tech.
1: Yeah, well, that's a reasonable way of putting it. I say, you know, consumer tech is all about making the consumer experience more comfortable. Yes. You know, you get your latte 2.2 nanoseconds faster via this new app compared to the previous app that was... You know getting you your coffees deep tech is all about
0: improving the human condition mm-hmm. uh, and the environment so it's like love me that trying to, like <laughs> me trying to explain quantum computing to someone or my kids <laughs> exactly but you
1: know i admire and respect the people involved because they're working on the big big problems and in some cases they look intractable from the outside but anyway um i am also uh, a director as i said of a very big wholesale nursery business, Andreessen's Green, the biggest wholesale nursery business in Australia, um, which has been owned for 40 plus years by the Green family. Uh, The chair is an old friend of mine from university days. He got me involved to help initially with kind of cleaning up the finance function there. Um, I have stayed on and and I love being on that board because every board meeting sees us in a nursery wandering through trees. uh, And it's such a change from, you know, what I spend most of the rest of my time doing. Um, I also sit on the board of an interesting business, uh, a property development business up in Byron Bay called Creative Capital, which was founded and led by a guy called Brandon Saul, who describes himself as the chief truffle pig of the business. Mm-hmm. He's just great at finding really interesting development opportunities in that part of the world, uh, and is utterly devoted to developments that kind of recreate the old fashioned village community feel, um, if you've ever been to Byron Bay and been, To the habitat development just off Ewingsdale Road, Um, that's one of his, Mm -hmm. and you know that's been a screaming success in terms of building that sense of you know villagey community. Um, Enjoy working with Brandon enormously. Um, uh, I also involved, I'm involved uh, in various capacities with uh, Blackbird Ventures. sit on the advisory committees, not the investment committees, but the advisory committees for most of their funds admire those guys enormously. You know, they're really in the top tier of venture capital firms in Australia. Now Um, I sit as a non-executive member of the investment committee of uh, a couple of funds managed by leapfrog investments, which Mm -hmm. is a big global impact investing business. Um, I chair the investment committee of MLC's uh, private equity program which straddles private equity uh, venture capital and co-investments uh, that group is actually now part of Insignia used to be IWOF mm-hmm. uh, enjoy working with those people enormously and last but not least I sit on the um, operating company within the Albert family office the Albert family Uh, is probably best known to most Australians as the family who were the initial backers of the guys who formed ACDC. And their involvement with that band uh, as the original backers is the gift that keeps on giving. Um, Within the Albert Group Services company, uh, I sit on the investment committee uh, for the main investment portfolio for the company, uh, and I also chair Albert Impact Ventures, which is their fledgling but looking very prospective impact
0: investing arm. So it's interesting if I reflect upon that sort of uh, portfolio of interests, I first of all think, wow, you must be very, very busy. How do you manage your time? But I secondly see a flavour of A, impact investing, um, obviously all private, um, but then a lot of earlier stage a lot of a lot more growth and almost venture capital type things than where when you transition from management management consulting into private markets it was really at the leverage buyout you know the traditional and and it's interesting because in Australia I find a lot of investors and a lot of clients I talk to when I first raise private equity with them they think of venture capital mm-hmm. and and they almost uh, Private equity in Australia is almost the same, whereas overseas, and you talk about private equity, you're thinking about large scale industrial management buyouts, mm-hmm. you know, Richard Gere and Pretty Woman buying companies <laughs> and breaking them up, rather than in Australia thinking of, you know, the, these VCs. So building out that. Was that a conscious decision for you to, A, go into the impact space more and, B, into the more fast-growth technology type of space? Um, it wasn't a conscious decision. It was born
1: of getting to know a guy called Rick Baker, who was one of the founders of Blackbird. And Rick was working at the MLC private equity program when I went on to that investment committee. But specifically, he looked after the venture capital investments that MLC had undertaken Uh, and Rick very kindly um, took me on a week's tour of Silicon Valley and I got to meet some of the titans of Silicon Valley uh, in the company of Rick and realised that I was able to do that because Rick had a reputation that extended to that part of the world and the people that I met, people like Mark Andreessen, um, uh, respected him and thought that he knew what he was doing when it came to being an investor, an LP in the venture capital world. So I just followed Rick around, so to speak, um, was amazed at what I'd learnt. I must admit, I just loved the buzz and the excitement of early stage investing uh, and you know, kind of drank that Kool-Aid by the 44-gallon drum full. And when Rick left MLC and announced that he was setting up Blackbird Ventures, um, you know, I kind of literally metaphorically chased him down the hall saying, think of me. Um, And so was an investor, largely on the back of seeing that Rick knew what he was doing. Uh, And of course, when I heard that he was partnering with Niggy Shavak, um, I came to the realisation that this was probably the best place that I could park that bit of money that was going into the venture capital sector. Um, But you're right. You know, the venture capital sector in Australia um, It's funny. I guess if you'd asked me about the prominence of PE versus venture capital 15, 20 years ago, you know, you'd have heard people sneer a little bit as they talked about the Australian venture capital industry. It had a couple of false starts. Um, Whereas the private equity industry, I think, you know, with people like Chris Hadley at Quadrant, um, Archer Capital, Champ, et cetera, we did very well by global standards But at the end of the day, you know, a lot of the local players have been squeezed out of particularly the big end of the market by the regional and global players who have activities here in Australia, whether it's Carlyle, TPG, uh, et cetera. But, you know, what has been, I think, most pleasing from my perspective has been the, I guess, the the new dawn of the venture capital industry from about 2012 um, with the likes of um, obviously uh, Blackbird, Airtree, Square Peg, coming into the scene and demonstrating that not only did they know how to find good founders, but there are now great founders building prospectively great businesses in Australia. And obviously, you know, it's a very symbiotic relationship between VC and the founders. Uh, and right now, you know, I have never been more confident about the fact that we are in the process of building a world-class VC industry here in Australia.
0: Now, Andrew, you've referenced twice in private markets, it's all about the management. Yep. So I've got to ask, do you have any shortcut methods, red flags or otherwise, for allowing us to work out whether management's any good or not? Uh, It does vary depending on whether you're talking about the management of a big established
1: business versus, you know, a startup. I think, though, in both cases, it's obviously a bias for action, that willingness to be vulnerable, i.e. to ask for help and not be embarrassed about asking for help. I think that the other thing that I, I've always appreciated as I've looked at top managers is a – I guess it's part of being vulnerable – is a willingness to acknowledge that they've got something wrong, that something needs to be changed and to not be ashamed or embarrassed about affecting that change when it's been necessary. Um the other thing that it's really hard to tell from the get-go is how a person behaves in a crisis because unless you have actually sat across the table from them in such a situation, asking other people what they're like, it's second best but it's still important to do. I mean, that's when it's really important. That's, that's when a person shows their true colours. When the proverbial is hitting the fan, when it's all coming apart, that's when you want to know that that person will take some deep breaths be cool-headed, level-headed, ask for help, etc. cetera. Uh, so, you know, I guess, I guess they're the three things. And um, <laughs> reference checking, critical, spending mm-hmm. as much time as you can with them. But at the end of the day, there is no substitute from actually watching them when you're sitting
0: alongside them on the same side of the table. And are there any sort of red flags or behaviours that you'll say, well, I, if I see that very early on or um, come to light that I, I'm out of here? Well, I guess to that
1: point about vulnerability, the person who will sit there uh, in the chief executive's chair saying, I've got this under control. Just don't bother me. Go away. Or the founder who basically goes, you know, just don't try and tell me what to do. I know exactly what I'm doing. Even if it is the case in both situations that they're very competent and capable and they do have things under control, um, I'm wary of those people. Um I'm also wary of the people who do fall apart at the first sign of trouble. Um, so, and and of course, you know, again to my point about a bias for action, the ones who seem to be sitting on decisions, procrastinating forever, just not getting on with it, you know, they're not the people that private equity or venture capital uh, firms want to back.
0: It's interesting. I, I know uh, someone who recently told me they like to take someone for a game of golf because they get to see <laughs> them when things go wrong um that's 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 that's
1: that's true isn't it because you you know as they say in golf you're only playing against one person really and that's yourself yes
0: (laughs) yeah it's a nice one um you're on the advisory board with air with blackbird Blackbird, yeah um what's the delineation or difference in role to that to the investment committee
1: the advisory board is really about helping to deal with conflicts of interest as between the general partner
0: or the management of the
1: fund and and the investors, the LPs, the limited partners. It's far more important uh, in venture capital than it is in private equity because there tend to be situations in venture capital where you can have multiple funds controlled by one manager that invest in the one business over Mm -hmm. time. Uh, And so there are conflicts possibly for the investors in the two different funds depending on circumstances in which the succeeding funds get involved in the earlier business and there are some other issues that uh, crop up from time to time But, but in the main it's dealing with ensuring that when there are different sets of investors having exposures to the same business the pricing and the terms on which the subsequent investors come in compared to the earlier investors are fair and reasonable.
0: Andrew, I think you're in a unique position out of all the people in the 140-odd episodes we've had on the podcast to talk about how do you select a manager in the private asset space? What do you look for? What's a positive thing? What's a red flag? Well, first and foremost, and it's the bleeding obvious,
1: it's the track record. Um, How much do you need? Well, you'd want at least a couple of funds worth One's enough. I mean, the hard part for anyone who's hanging out a shingle as an asset manager in the private equity space is convincing people to come on board for the first fund unless they can point to their track records as Somewhere an else. individual investor with another shop mm-hmm. um, and can piece together something that's a compelling story. But it's it's the track record. You know, they talk about the fact that in private markets, asset managers, the fund managers have um, – The good ones have more persistence in their performance, which the financial economists, they use that word persistence to kind of say um, they maintain it longer in private markets than managers do in public markets. You know, today's rooster is next year's feather duster kind of thing for public markets. But the really good managers in private markets tend to continue to be the really good managers. So the problem there for someone who's looking to get into a fund run by a really good manager is that everyone else wants to uh, and there's usually a queue and it can take some time, but when you get there, you'll likely do very well as an investor. The problem is if you can't get access to those great managers, you will probably be worse off than if you had gone into some good stocks in public markets and geared them up. I mean, there have been endless academic studies which have demonstrated that in private markets you want to be with the, well, they used to talk about the top quartile of Mm -hmm. private equity managers. It's probably the top decile now. They used to talk about the top, you know, 10% of venture capital fund managers. It's probably the top 5%. It's all about getting access to the good ones and that can take time. Um, But I guess the other thing that you can do is to find the good people who have left the good firms for whatever reason, usually because they're, not getting enough carry or whatever, and backing them in their early funds. Um, And that's what, you know, MLC has done incredibly well uh, in recent years. They've realised that um, the managers who have started new funds are often incredibly hungry to prove themselves. And if you can find the right people and back them from the get-go, there's usually a lot of positive things that flow from that, not least of which is continued access
0: to their funds. Andrew... We at CODA come come across a lot of clients who have large liquidity events in businesses that make widgets or otherwise. Um, What advice would you give to them uh, when they start to explore private markets? It's kind of interesting in that from my perspective, you know, the wealth advice business and the wealth management business has almost come out of you know, what is the easiest and what is the easiest to distribute? And that has been stocks and bonds. And as things have gotten more developed, people have been able to manage more alternate type of assets. And the fact they just call them alternate assets strikes me that they fit fit into this mysterious basket, which is just a company the same as one. It just happens not to be listed, the same as property, et cetera. Um, what sort of advice would you have for those type of people? And what are some of the common mistakes you see those people make?
1: Well, you know, obviously first and foremost, um, talk to your CODA advisor about <laughs> your <laughs> risk fishing appetite. I for it, but it's nice. <laughs> <laughs> well, you have to in those circumstances because you need someone, you know, if, if you're a successful business manager, then in all probability you are not an experienced investor because you have spent most of your waking hours building a successful business, not managing a portfolio of investments um you know talk to your advisor about your risk appetite and your need for liquidity because um you know i think they're the two guardrails that you need to focus on when you're talking about um delving into private markets uh risk appetite obviously at one end of the spectrum the riskier venture capital at the other end of the spectrum the less risky private equity but of course as we know the flip side of risk is return um you can have stellar returns out of venture capital because it's riskier. You can have some great returns, but rarely can they hit the heights of venture capital and private equity. So risk appetite, liquidity is important. Um, And I think it is finding out who can provide you with access to the better managers. Because again, it's just, as I said before, it's management, management, management. Um, And I hate to kind of bang on about that, but... Um, And some people, I think, have looked at my investment decision making and sometimes thought that it's almost to the exclusion of everything else. It's not, but it's just that the people are
0: at the top of the tree. Andrew, I think that's a great way to leave it uh, with that key theme that has just come through this podcast that we've recorded over the last 30, 40 minutes of. It's all about management. It's all about the people. Uh, Andrew, thank you very much for joining us in Inside the Rope. I really appreciate it. David, it's been my pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to Inside the Rope with David Clark.
1: Be sure to subscribe to this podcast on iTunes. You can connect with David by visiting
0: codacapital.com.